You know, when I was a little kid, I was swinging on a swing set and apparently I had this need to learn how to fly. So I, I jumped off the seat and my landing wasn't good at all. I crashed and burned and I ended up breaking my ankle. And so my mom took me to a doctor and he put on a cast, but have you ever seen the cast where they put a heel plate on the back of it? And it's actually a walking cast. And uh, so you can continue to walk on your broken ankle while the thing is healing up because it's, it's secured inside of that cast. Well, believe it or not, only a couple weeks later, I broke my other ankle, and it wasn't from me trying to be a stuntman or anything like that. It, it, it was an accident. But now I have on two walking casts, and I'm walking around like Frankenstein. I mean, that's what, that's what it reminded me of. But uh, when I had the cast removed, the, the doctor told my mom that the bones uh, at the place where they broke were now stronger than they ever were before. They say that the stress of a break actually strengthens the area where the break occurs and makes it literally better than new. Now I'm curious, how many of you have ever broken a bone, an arm or a leg? Wow, a lot of people here. You know, certainly there are a lot of breaks in life, in our lifetime, other than the breaking of bones. And I'm certain some of you have experienced those as well. Perhaps it was a broken relationship. Maybe it was a broken heart. Maybe you had a dream that was shattered on the rocks of life. Those kinds of breaks really shouldn't surprise any of us because by definition, life in this fallen world is full of falls. We all go through the hardships. We all go through painful experiences. But if we treat those experiences correctly, just like with a broken bone, we can become stronger than we were before. With God's help, times of testing can make us better, stronger, more mature, especially when it comes to our Christian walk. Well, this morning, we come to a time in Jesus' ministry when he realizes his disciples' faith needed the strengthening effect that comes from hardship. And if you'll find your way to John chapter six, while you're doing that, let me provide you with a little bit of context. As we discussed last week, Jesus had just fed multiple thousands of people with two fish and five barley loaves. When he miraculously multiplied the contents of a little boy's lunch pail that he had presented to Jesus. And the, uh, the multitude that Jesus fed that day, they responded to this miracle by wanting to make Jesus their king by force. They decided that Jesus was the perfect guy to run the Roman empire out of Palestine. They were ready to put him up on their shoulders and march him into Jerusalem and seat him in the palace. Well, this is where our story today starts. It's recorded in three of the four gospel accounts. Only Luke leaves it out of his account. And by reading the other three, we can clearly see that the disciples were a part of this post-miracle crowd problem. For example, in Matthew's account, he confesses that Jesus had to make or compel him and the other 12 disciples to get into a boat. He wanted them to go ahead while he sent the multitude of people away. 
And the reason he did this is because his disciples wanted Jesus to be their political Messiah as much as the crowd did. In fact, Jesus' veiled reference to Judas the next day, if you'll read down in verse 70 or 71, it suggests that Judas may have been the ringtail leader of the entire thing, but whatever the rate, Jesus had one idea, his disciples had another idea, and that's never a good thing. Their crowd, the disciples' crowd-following response to this feeding miracle showed how far they actually were from where they needed to be on a spiritual level. It showed that they had a frail faith that needed the proper encouragement to grow. So with this in mind, Jesus ordered the 12 to get into a boat and he told them to head out across the lake. He knew that shipping them out was the very best way to shape them up. So I want to read together John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. I'll be reading from the New International Version. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along with us. John 6, 15 through 21. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, don't be afraid.'" Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This morning, I want to take details from the three varying gospels and take a closer look at this familiar story, because honestly, John isn't offering a whole lot of details here. When you read the other two accounts, you see other details added to this story. It has been a long day. And, and, and now with his troublesome disciples gone and with the crowd finally having dispersed, Jesus was able to go up on the hillside and be alone. He needed time to be alone and he needed time to pray. Several hours had passed when suddenly a, a windstorm hit and it was blowing the disciples' boat southward away from the northern shore. In Matthew 14, 24, it says, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. But really, buffeted is not a good word to use here because it sounds like a delicate thing, and there was nothing delicate going on at this moment. The boat was in danger of being crushed by these heavy waves. The Greek word here literally says the boat was tormented by the waves. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, and it's about seven miles at its widest point. And it is usually a calm body of water. But it is well known for these windstorms that can very quickly turn it into a dangerous body of water. The Sea of Galilee sits 686 feet below sea level in a deep rift between the Arabian Desert and the Mediterranean Sea. And the winds will frequently whip down through that gorge, turning it into a huge wind tunnel that tosses and turns its waves into raging waters. 
And this was especially true and difficult for the crude sailing boats of the first century. Even today, there are frequent watercraft advisories that warn boaters to remain docked during these windstorms. Well, this particular storm was so bad that the disciples, many of who were professional fishermen and who were used to being in the water almost daily, well, they were scared. They were fighting for their lives. They rowed and they rowed against this headwind until about 3 a.m. And they were understandably cold and wet and exhausted. And, and adding on to that, they were terrified. As I said, when we combine the information from all three gospel accounts, we get a fairly detailed account of what happened next. But I want to remind you, as I have all along, that this really wasn't John's purpose. And as I said, he doesn't record every small detail in his very brief version of this story. And the reason is, is because it's already been done by two other gospel writers. Please remember, he was the last one to write his gospel account. Plus, as you will recall, as I've been telling you all along, uh, he was led by God's Spirit to record those things that would prove that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I'm talking about those specific signs, as he calls them. Other writers call them miracles that would lead the readers to believe in Christ and that by believing in him, they would receive eternal life in his name. That is John's purpose for writing his gospel account. And that's his purpose for recording this particular sign that he did. And as you read John's account, you can't help, excuse me, you can see him underscore the fact that Jesus is God because he has complete control over the universe that he created. In any case, when we combine the eyewitness accounts from Matthew, Mark, and John, we can see that there were actually four different miracles that took place in this text that we just read. And of course, the first miracle was Jesus walking on water. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that like I did when I was a kid, but if so, you will quickly realize that it's impossible. And, what, and that's what makes this miracle so fascinating. But like I mentioned, even over the past several weeks as we've talked about these other signs, these other miracles that Jesus performed, is that there are liberal theologians out there who try to explain away this miracle just like they did the other ones. And again, I don't even know why you would put theologian and liberal together because if you're a theologian and you believe the word of God, I don't know why they're questioning the things that are going on here. As far as I'm concerned, they can all go and become salesman somewhere. But the point is, they say things like, Jesus really didn't walk on the water. And his disciples were just rowing their boat really, really close to shore. The inference here is that, that Jesus was simply walking along the shoreline, and because it was dark, and because it was stormy, and because it was raining, it looked like he was walking on water. Can I just say that that is, that is just plain nonsense? That is, that is just silly. With hurricane wind force, or winds blowing around from the north, the disciples would have been pushed miles from the shoreline. And with the full Passover moon that was shining, even in the midst of that, that storm, they would have been able to see that. The fact is, that in this instance, Jesus defied the laws of gravity. He defied the principles of buoyancy that he created when he created this world. 
So Jesus walked on the water, but not only did Jesus walk on the water, Matthew records a second miracle. Jesus called Peter out of the boat to walk on the water to him. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus and not on the raging waves, he was able to miraculously walk on the surface of that stormy sea as well. When you read Matthew and Mark's accounts, both record a third miracle. When Jesus and Peter got back into the boat, the wind immediately stopped. It was such a sudden change that Mark 6.51 says this, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. So this wasn't just a slight change in the weather. It wasn't just like things had calmed down and the storm had passed by. These guys had never seen a storm like this end so suddenly. And believe me when I tell you that they were familiar with these waters because they had sailed the Sea of Galilee throughout their lifetime. No, this was something like they had never ever seen before. So they were amazed, as the scripture says, beyond measure. The calm was instantaneous. Immediately it went from gale force winds and huge waves to zero wind and the sea of glass. Have you ever been in the kind of a storm that as soon as you go inside and shut the door, your ears are ringing from the noise that you just left? Well, I imagine that is what happened to these disciples. I think that they were in mid-sentence screaming at the top of their lungs in order for them to hear each other. Then all of a sudden, God turns off that storm and instantly it was so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. I mean, there was no doubt in their mind that another miracle had happened. But there's another miracle that happened that night and John is the only one who records this. When Jesus got into the boat, they immediately reached the shore. We just read it in verse 21, look at it again. Then they were willing to take him, meaning Jesus, into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Do you remember how far verse 19 said they had gotten, how far they had rowed? Said three and a half miles. The disciples had been rowing that boat most of the night into this horrible headwind for probably about nine hours, but all their effort didn't get them very far. It only got them about halfway across that body of water. But as soon as Jesus gets into that boat, the wind immediately stops. They didn't have to row anymore because they were immediately on the other shore. Not really, really fast, but immediately. Another obvious miracle that went on here. Four in a row. Four unmistakable, unexplainable, unrequested miracles. And the question is why? Why did Jesus go through all that? There wasn't a crowd of people watching. The only people in that boat were his disciples. Why in the world did he need or would he want to perform these four great signs? Well, I believe it was because Jesus knew that his disciples were newborn believers that needed to grow in their faith. And their behavior after the feeding of that multitude proved this. As I said a moment ago, it showed their level of spiritual immaturity. In Mark 6, verse 51 through 52, he writes 
this about the disciples after they saw this quartet of miracles. He said, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves, the loaves of bread that Jesus fed the multitude with. Their hearts were hardened, he writes. In other words, they had just witnessed Jesus feed probably 20,000 people with the contents of some boy's lunch pail, but their faith, even after seeing that, was still small. Their hearts were still hardened. And Jesus realized this, and he knew that their faith still needed to grow. So Jesus encouraged the growth of their frail faith in the best way possible, by putting them through a time of testing, a stormy time that led to these four miracles that I just shared with you. And he does the same kind of thing with us today. Our Lord allows us to go through times of testing where we can see God's wonder-working power in action in order that our faith will be strengthened. And within that testing of our faith, we will be made stronger than we were before, very much in a way that a broken bone does once it heals back up. Rick Warren puts it this way. He said, God is more interested in your character than in your comfort. He wants us all to grow up spiritually until we are conformed into the image of his son. And many times, the best way possible in order for him to do this in our life is through testing. It is through hardship or some kind of a temporary crisis that helps us to understand eternal truth. In his commentary on this text, James Montgomery Boyce talks about the process of making silver in the Near East. He says that in the bazaars of these nations, silversmiths work with coins. They melt them down and they form them into rings or brooches or, or necklaces of different kinds. These craftsmen have small stoves where they place a pot on top of the stove and then they put the silver coins into the pot to melt them. And every so often the silversmith will get up from his work and he will walk over and he will look to the pot and then he'll go back to work. And if you were to ask him, why do you constantly go back and forth and take a look inside of that pot into the melting silver, the silversmith would explain to you that he looks into the melted silver until all the dross is gone. Dross is the impurities that, that rise to the top whenever silver is melted. Eventually, the dross burns away and it, ne and it leaves him nothing but silver that is purified. And silversmiths know that when the dross is gone, because they can see their reflection in the silver when they look down into the bowl. It's just like looking into a mirror. And, and that's what God does in our times of testing. The dross, the impurities in our life, eventually get burned away. In fact, if you read Malachi 3.3, it says this about God. He will sit as a refiner of pur and purifier of silver. He's referring to us. He's referring to his children. In other words, he allows us to go through the, the times of fire and the testings of life in order to strengthen us, in order to purify us until the dross is gone and Jesus is reflected within us for the whole world to see. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that the Lord disciplines those who he loves. He loves us enough 
to put us through hard times in order to grow our faith stronger. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. He used a time of testing as a way of encouraging his disciples' frail faith. So with all that in mind, I want to explore our scripture text this morning, and I want to point out three ways in which God works in and through the trials and tribulations of life. Three ways in which he works, even in these difficult times, for our good. And the first one is this. He puts us in places we don't want to go. Ever been there? Back up a bit and think about what Jesus and his disciples, had, where they had just been. They had been up on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee with thousands of people who had full stomachs and who were happy as they could possibly be. They were ready to make Jesus their king because he had fed them. But I want you to look at this miracle from the perspective of Jesus' disciples. They were full, they were happy, but they were also superstars. They were members of Jesus' inner circle. And Jesus, at that point, was a celebrity. They could kind of puff out their chest a little bit and say, yeah, I'm with him. And so then what did Jesus do? He ran them off. Mark says he sent away the people. Matthew says Jesus sent the multitude away. In short, Jesus ran off the disciples' fan club. And then as I said earlier, he ran the disciples off as well. In fact, Matthew and Mark use the identical words. And straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into a ship. So Jesus took them from a place where they wanted to be, and he put them into a place where they didn't want to be. He ran off their fan club, and he made them get on board a boat and head to the other side, and he made them go by themselves. Now the text doesn't specifically say anything about this, but I'm pretty sure that they didn't want to leave without taking Jesus with them. And that just shows, in my mind, their ability and their need to grow spiritually. In any case, Jesus put them exactly where he wanted them. He was putting his disciples, who were weak and frail in their faith, where they needed to be in order for their faith to grow, in order for their faith to blossom. So after the disciples row out of sight, I believe that as the creator of the universe, Jesus sent this storm. Jesus put them out there, away and alone from the glare of popularity. Jesus put them on this stormy sea instead of up on the peaceful mountainside. He put them in a fragile boat in horribly stormy waters. Jesus put his disciples in a place where they didn't want to go to strengthen their faith. And he does the same thing for us. He puts us where we need to be in order to grow our faith. So if you are in a storm right now in your life of some kind, if you are in a stressful, uncomfortable place, remember this story in John's gospel and then ask yourself, what is God trying to teach me through this difficulty? How does my faith need to mature. Listen, the, the best place for your faith to grow 
is in that place where all you have to rely on is Jesus. No cheering crowds, no comfortable mountainside retreat. The best place for you to grow spiritually is during your storms in life because that's where all you have to rely on is Jesus. Because in those times, you finally come to understand that Jesus is enough. It's been said you can't learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You ever been there? The key to growing to the point where God can best use you and I best is learning to rely on Jesus. Hudson Taylor, the great faith missionary, once wrote this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. I've been through many storms of my own in my lifetime, and they have taught me invaluable lessons, lessons that I don't think I would have learned any other way. And here it is, you might wanna write this down. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. If Jesus is all you have, that's okay, because Jesus is all you need. During World War II, Corrie Ten Boom and her sister were imprisoned in concentration camps because their family had hid Jews from the Nazis. Everything was taken from them. Their home, their possessions, their friends, they had little food, no medical care. Even Corrie's father and sister died in that brutal place. So she had nothing. All she had was her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was in that place that she didn't want to go to, and she certainly didn't want to be in, where Corey learned an invaluable truth. She learned through very, very difficult and hostile circumstances, that, and through life and death circumstances, that Christ is sufficient. Her faith grew so much that for the rest of her life, she feared losing nothing. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything. And you can't lose Jesus. You remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes the only way we can learn to embrace this comforting and eternal truth is by being in a place where we don't want to go. Well, there's a second thing that God does to encourage frail faith. He gives us commands we don't always understand. Jesus got his followers into that boat and he basically told them to row. Matthew says that Jesus told them, go before him unto the other side. Mark fills Jesus' command out with a little more detail. He records Jesus saying, get into the ship and go to the other side before to Bethsaida. There was no word as to when they would see Jesus again. There was no word as to why Jesus wasn't accompanying them on that boat. There, there was no explanation as to why this journey had to begin so late in the evening. Jesus just commanded them to depart. And though I know that their behavior after the feeding of that multitude left a great deal to be desired, you gotta give them this much. 
they obeyed Jesus. Even though they didn't think it made much sense, they obeyed him. Even when it got really difficult, they obeyed him. Even when it would have been a whole lot easier to turn back, they obeyed him. Even when it seemed like they were getting nowhere as they rode hour after hour, they obeyed. Even when the fiber of everything inside of them was aching with fear and pain and, and, and frustration and, and, and everything else that you can add to that descriptive, they obeyed and they kept on rowing. They rowed nearly all night long against that terrible headwind. And for all that effort, all they got was about three and a half miles. They weren't even halfway to the halfway point across that body of water. So Jesus told them to go. And Jesus was their Lord and their Savior and their Master. So they kept rowing throughout the night. The present made absolutely no sense to them. And the future was completely unclear. But Jesus gave the command. And they were going to obey that command, whatever it cost. And this is an important faith-growing principle that we've all got to understand because there are times when Jesus commands us to do things that doesn't make sense to our limited human understanding. I don't care how brilliant you are, how smart you are, you, you have a small amount of knowledge and understanding compared to that of God Almighty. There are times when he assigns us tasks that we do not understand, things that we don't even feel that we are capable of doing. There are times when, when Jesus calls us to do things without showing us what the ultimate destination is going to look like. And maturing disciples, they have learned to obey him in spite of their fears, in spite of their doubts, in spite of, of all of the unanswered questions that they have. For example, Jesus might command you to, bef to befriend a, a non-Christian friend or coworker. You may not even like that person that much and they probably don't like you either. But he'll command you to take them and put them under your wing and disciple them and lead them to Christ. He can, may command you to serve in your church in some way, shape, or form. And you feel like you just don't have the time and the enemy has, has filled your brain so many times that you don't have what it takes to do it. He may ask you to tithe on your income when your checkbook tells you you should do something totally different. God commands us all the time to do things that we don't understand and things that we don't feel we are capable of doing. But we must obey God in obedience because when we obey, we see things about God that we would never see under any other circumstance, and our faith grows. Maturing Christians need to say what Nelson Mink wrote. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. And Lord, if others are to be your messengers to me, I am willing to hear and heed what they have to say. There's a movie that is a favorite at the Blythe House. It's one that we've watched many times over. It's called The Princess Bride. And I can tell by the response many of you have seen the film. There is a scene at the beginning of the film that kind of uncovers or unfolds the relationship between the romantic interests in the film. Buttercup is the female and farm boy is who she calls this young, this young man. Buttercup orders this farm boy around incessantly, and no matter what she commands, his response to her is always, as you wish. 
In the story, there comes a point where she's ordering around farm boy, and he answers, as you wish. And that is when Buttercup finally realizes that what the farm boy was really saying to her was, I love you. I wish I could take credit for this, but John Ortberg points out that there is a spiritual lesson to be found in this movie of all things. He says, and I quote, there's a, spiritual, there's a powerful spiritual parallel in that maturing Christians whose faith have been encouraged to grow, they learn to obey God always. Even when he commands us to do things we don't want to do, things we don't think we are capable of doing, things we don't understand. When God commands mature believers, say, as you wish. And when we say those words, we are saying, I love you. And that makes complete sense to me because Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. The heart that, that learns to say, as you wish to God, from, from one moment to the next, what they do is they open themselves up to the power and the provision from the creator of the universe. But those that don't, those who comfortably say, not, not thy will, but my will be done, Lord, well, those hearts eventually harden up. Those hearts cease to grow. Ortberg says, he continues, he said, it's like the difference between two key parts of electricity, the conductor and the resistor. He writes this, the secret of the conductor, this is that one who would be used by God, is that it is not generating its own power. The conductor is not particularly strong or clever. It is simply a conduit. It is open and receptive to the flow of current that can change the world from darkness to light. While the resistor's prayer is, leave me alone, the conductor is, as you wish. Each prayer gets answered, by the way. So let me ask you, which prayer would you like to be answered in your life? Do you really want God to leave you alone? Do you want to miss out on joining him in his work and miss out on being the conduit of his power? If the answer is no, then you must learn to obey God whenever he comes calling, no matter what he commands. You must learn to say to your heavenly father, as you wish even when you don't fully understand. And that will take you on the ride of your life, and it will show you things that you have never, ever seen before. And that leads me to the third thing that Jesus does to encourage his disciples' frail faith. He puts us through trials so we can see things about him we tend to overlook. Back to our text. The disciples are in the middle of this windstorm of their lifetime. Wave after wave is crashing over the boat. It's taking on water. They know that in time it's probably going to sink. But then they notice something. Or should I say they notice someone coming toward them across the waves. In Matthew's account, he says at first they think Jesus is a ghost. But then they realize that it is Christ. And Peter says this, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus does. And Peter walks on the water for a while. Of course, then his faith fails and, and he sinks. So Jesus yanks him up out of the water and he gets him in the boat. And then Jesus commands the storm to end. And instantaneously, he transports them 
and all of that boat and everything within it to the other side of the water because the lesson is over. The time of testing is complete. And because of that testing, through that stormy darkness, the disciples were able to see things about Jesus that they hadn't seen before. While they were fighting this storm, they learned some very important things. First, they learned that Jesus was watching. And I think that this should, should serve to teach us that when we have rough times going on in our life, when the storms break and we think that we are going down for the count, Jesus is watching. When we get those phone calls that come in the middle of the night, when, the, when you look at the clock and you go, this is not good. Nobody would call me this time of night. When doctors give you bad news, when your family is falling apart, when we think our world is about to crumble down around us, Jesus sees. He knows all about the storms that you're going through. The lyrics of that old song are so true. His eye is on the sparrow, so I know he watches me. In fact, there is nowhere that we can go to be out of the sight of God. Remember the words of Psalm 139, seven through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Secondly, the disciples learned something else to that storm. They learned Jesus does more than watch because he didn't just see what they were going through. He acted. He came down and he walked on the surface of that water in those stormy seas. And I don't know about you, but I have never felt closer to Jesus than during times of personal crisis. He doesn't just notice my problems, he draws me near and he acts to help on my behalf. I know by experience that, that Jesus is near and that he is ready to help me when I need him the most. Well, then Peter and John and the others, they learn something else in this dark, stormy classroom of faith that they're going through. They learned Jesus was good. Do you remember his words to him when he walked across those stormy seas? In verse 20, he said, it is I. Don't be afraid. Those first three words, it is I, they come from two Greek words, ego ami. And we're going to see these two words used over and over again in the next few chapters of John. Do you know what they literally mean? Ego ami literally means I am. Does that sound familiar to you? It should sound familiar to you because in the Old Testament, when God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, when God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses asked God, who shall I tell them sent me? You remember what God said? He said, tell them that I am sent you. So Jesus was saying, don't be afraid. I am here. God is here because I'm God. I'm the one who created this world. I'm the one who created this wind and water. I'm the one who created this storm. I'm the one who created you. And as your creator and as your sustainer, I am telling you, fear not. 
Then he further proved his claim by calming the storm and transporting them instantly to their destination. Here's the truth, church. Sometimes God lets us go through storms. We would rather avoid them. We would rather do anything than go through a storm. We, we do everything in our power to try to avoid one. But it is in the darkness of life. It is in the, the deep trials. It is in those broken days that we are able to see God for who he really is. Only in those times do we really learn how much he loves us. We also learn that he is omnipotent and therefore bigger than any problem that you and I might face. It's during those difficult moments where we begin to truly comprehend his sovereignty, his wisdom, his strength, and his power. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask everyone, if you would, to stand to your feet. While I was preparing for this service this week, the thing that kept resonating through my mind over and over is that God will allow you and I to go through challenging times in order to teach us, in order to grow you and I up spiritually, if he needs to. And I, in that statement, I think the most important words are, if he needs to. That's a loaded statement, if, if it's required. I want you to look deep inside your heart this morning and ask yourself, is God trying to get your attention? Are you connecting with him on any kind of a regular basis when you're outside of, of this room? Or are you just kind of strolling through life, reaching out to him only when you have a need and you need him to intervene on your behalf and take care of something? You know, I think that describes a lot of Christians in America today. Just like his own disciples who were with Jesus and they saw all of his power, they saw all of his majesty and glory and wisdom and brilliance every single day. He still needed to get their attention. So is he trying to get yours this morning? Well, there comes a time when we've got to respond. We can't just keep ignoring him. We can't just ignore the things that he is calling us to do. We can't ignore his efforts to try to build us up and to grow us up spiritually and to mature as men and women of God. Most importantly, we can't just ignore our hardened hearts. The disciples' hearts were hardened. So if theirs could get hardened, does it make sense that, that ours can as well? Maybe you've never thought of that. Your heart might be harder than you think it is. And, and you will be able to determine that based on how you respond to circumstances that are brought before you. We all have to guard ourselves against the hardening of our heart. And according to Mark's gospel, that is exactly what the disciples suffered from. They'd seen it all, yet they still didn't fully understand. In some cases, they just simply got used to it. In my opinion, the most dangerous place for any of us to be is on autopilot. We're existing, 
but we're really not living in the abundance that God offers us, the abundance that God so desires for us to have in our life, because we've lost the wonder. We've lost the shine. We've somehow lost our passion. We're simply running on empty. I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to change that this morning. Because just like the disciples learn, you can come to realize that Jesus is watching. And not only is Jesus watching, but he's acting. And not only is he acting, but he is truly a good God. You can learn these important lessons the easy way, or you can learn them the hard way going through crisis. And you, and you can do it the easy way by simply learning to know him in a deeper, more committed way, being obedient to the things that he's calling you to do and quit ignoring his voice by offering him your time, your attention, your abilities, your gifts. That's when you really begin to understand who he is in your life. And you come to realize how active he is in your daily life. That's when we, we begin to learn that every day that we exist on this earth is a gift from God with Christ who lives in our hearts and with his spirit that indwells us. And when that happens, it becomes very hard for your heart to become hardened. I want to open this altar this morning to anybody who's going through a challenging time. Maybe you've been praying for God to deliver you from this difficult time. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you to come and ask God to teach you something through your valley, through your difficult time. I want anyone who needs to reconnect with Jesus to come forward and seek him this morning. I want anyone who feels you are running on empty to come forward and ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you and empower you this morning. I want anyone who has lost your passion to come forward and ask God to reveal himself to you in a new way, to, to ignite something new with inside of you. I want anyone who is simply needs time to come and pray, to kneel at this altar. We need to remove any barriers that would prevent us from being obedient and coming down here and seeking the face of God this morning. We must humble ourselves and we must say, God, something is missing. I'm not certain what it is, but I just don't feel I'm where I need to be with you. And he will tell you what that is and he will give you that thing that you're missing. I've asked the worship team to sing a song that you're very familiar with. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We're gonna sing that through one time. While we're singing that through, if you wanna wait till they sing it through the first time, if you wanna come down while they're singing, I want you to just listen to the words. Feel those words and then come down here to this altar and let's spend some time in prayer. I wanna remind you, better is five minutes in the presence of God than days or weeks or months or years in other places. Let's spend some time in God's presence before we close this service.
continue to play, pray at the altar, would you bow your heads with me and we can close this service in prayer. Precious Lord, we thank you again, as we always do for your word. 
so much to learn, so much power, so many examples of, of how you operate, how you want us to respond, how you want us to live our lives. Thank you for those who came to this altar today seeking clarity from you, Lord God, for many different reasons. And I know there are many more who didn't come forward, Lord, that, that need direction. We need you to ignite something within us, God, so that we wouldn't be casual Christians, but we would be on fire Christians for you. There would be no doubt about where we stand because everybody would know it. Not because we're loud, not because we make bold statements, but the way that we live our life fully trusting in you in all things. Even when the chips are down, even when life is going in the wrong direction and seemingly against us, we know that you are with us. You are not just watching, but you are acting on our behalf and you are never closer than during those moments. And instead of us fleeing, instead of us withdrawing, instead of us isolating ourselves, God, I pray that we would lean into you because you are leaning into us and there we will find our answers. There we will find peace in the storm and there eventually the storm will cease and we will end up on the shore of where you want us. I thank you for my church family, Lord. Pray that our unified desire would be to love you with all of our mind, body, soul, and spirit, and that we would love each other equally as strong. That's a winning recipe. That is a recipe in which you can work through any of us. I pray that we would be willing vessels to do the things that you've asked us to do to further your kingdom in this church and outside of this place. Use us, Father, I pray. And as we go our separate ways today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Let them be conversations that build up and not tear down. Let us be bright, shining lights in a very dark world. Let your love come shining through us in such a way that it is undeniable that people would know that there is something different about us and it is the love of Christ that drives us onward. Lord, I pray that this week you would give us opportunities to share your goodness with another person, that we might lead them to the cross and at a, at a minimum invite them to come to church with us so that they can seek and they can find you and they can taste and see that the Lord is good. Let that be on our mind constantly, Lord. Let us be evangelists, each one individually in our sphere of influence. I pray that you keep us safe until we gather together again. Keep us safe from COVID. Keep us safe from any other sicknesses or diseases that may befall us. Keep us safe from any accidents that might occur until we gather together again. And join as a family and worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for these beautiful people. Thank you for touching hearts today. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Pray that you'll use us mightily this week. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for being here.